Hey everyone, it's Hannah. Today I'm going to continue to read from Ed Gooding's book. I hope you enjoy the two stories and be sure to check out the link in the show notes if you would like more information on our Patreon. And if anyone's listening, happy Halloween. investigator worth his salt wants to solve every crime that he is associated with. I promise you I was no exception. Regretfully, though, if you work long enough, you won't solve all of them. Unfortunately, I was not an exception to that rule either. One of the most frustrating cases I ever had involved, what else, a murdered soldier from Fort Hood. On March 12, 1979, Amy Teresa Murillo of Colleen was riding her horse when she came upon the remains of what appeared to be a man. She called John Foster, who lived in a nearby house, and he in turn called the Bell County Sheriff's Office. A little after one o'clock that afternoon, I arrived at the scene with my number one running buddy, Bill Miller, of the Bell County CID office. What we found wasn't a body, but a skeleton. There was no skin on the legs, arms, or head. What little flesh was left on the torso was drawn up and discolored so badly that we couldn't be sure if the body was that of a man or a woman, white or black. About 20 feet away, we found human teeth and a body impression. Obviously, varmints had recently drugged the body to its present location. The skeleton had on what appeared to be a white t-shirt with the words Riverside Trojans written on it, white work pants, white or light blue tennis shoes, and athletic socks. The only other thing we found on the remains was a small chain around the neck with a key attached to it. The key was stamped with 34010-4 and directly under these numbers, 316. After Justice of the Peace, Madge Turland held her inquest and pronounced the body officially dead. She ordered the remains sent to the Southwest Forensic Institute's lab in Dallas for autopsy. Working on the assumption that the body was that of a soldier, we searched the surrounding area with a metal detector. We were trying to locate the body's dog tags for identification, but none were ever found. As with standard procedure in cases like this, I talked to everyone who lived in the area, hoping they might know something they were not even aware of. Nothing produced any positive results. This case, as much as any I ever worked, showed just how far people would go to not get involved. The area where the body was found was in an open space covered with short grass. There wasn't any brush near it. There were numerous tire tracks coming from Love Lane to within a few feet of the body. There was even one set of car tracks that went all the way around the body. The corpse was only 100 yards from the home of a man who worked at the Darnell Army Hospital. When asked if he hadn't smelled the decaying body, he replied about two months earlier he had smelled something, but he was unable to determine exactly where it was coming from. He even told us that his dog had come home once, smelling so bad several baths didn't wash it off. The man said that he thought the dog had found a dead cow. After leaving the crime scene, I contacted Fort Hood's CID officer, Agent Alexander, and asked if he could shed any light on the key we had found with the skeleton. He said the numbers 34010-4 and 316 indicated building 34010 wing 4 room 316. He assured me he would check it out and get back to me as soon as he knew anything, but it wasn't long before he called me back and advised me that Dexter Johnson, 21, had been living in this room and he had been listed as AWOL since October 3rd, 1978. 
I requested Agent Alexander to try and secure Johnson's dental records. They were soon delivered to us, and a positive identification was made. The next day, Bell County Deputy Burt Wilkerson went to Fort Hood to talk to people who were close to Johnson. One, John Terman, said that the last time he saw Dexter Johnson, he was wearing white medic pants and a gray t-shirt with the words Riverside Trojans on it. He explained that Riverside High School in Chattanooga, Tennessee was Johnson's alma mater. Johnson had been a member of Company B, 15th Medical Battalion, 1st Cavalry Division. We asked the commander if he could shed any light on Johnson's disappearance. He couldn't directly, but he checked company records and provided us with the names of two men who had signed the guest book to visit Johnson on the night of his disappearance. The two men had been in the Army, but had since been discharged. One was from Portland, Oregon, and the other was from Henderson, Texas. We checked telephone records in an attempt to find out if either of the men were still in the area, but without success. I had my good friend and fellow ranger in Longview, Glenn Elliott, check out the Henderson area and see if he could get a lead. Glenn confirmed that one of our suspects lived in Henderson and was currently working in Tyler. That same morning, Deputy Steve Moore, who had accompanied the body to Dallas, was contacted by the Dallas Forensic Institute. They advised him that during the autopsy, they had discovered an identification card in the corpse's pants pocket identifying him as Dexter Johnson. Dr. DeMaio, the pathologist, informed Steve that very possibly the subject had 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 been dead since the preceding October or November. Cold weather tends to dry out and mummify a body. While Bert and I were in Fort Hood, we continued to interview Johnson's friends. Derek Garrett said that the night Johnson had disappeared, he had ironed and laid out his fatigues he would wear the next day. Johnson was a dandy when it came to clothes. He was even a male model whenever there was a style show at Fort Hood. Continuing, Garrett said that another soldier, Carl Thomas, told him that he saw Johnson get into a car with two unknown men about the same time he disappeared. Further questioning revealed that Maddox Thompson had been in the room with Johnson the night before his disappearance. Two unknown men had entered the room and asked Johnson if he wanted to take a ride. Thompson confirmed that he had also seen Johnson with the two men the following night. He said that Johnson did not appear to dislike the military and never gave any indication that he ever considered deserting. We continued with the investigation with a few concrete leads that would lead to an arrest. On March 21st, Dr. DeMaio advised us that he had been able to take the badly shrunken skin from the chest and wet it in some kind of solution for several days. The solution had given it some elasticity, so he was then able to stretch the skin so that he could work with it enough to count numerous stab wounds. There were over 60 ice pick marks in the chest when he stopped counting. This fit a definite pattern. According to what we were taught in crime school, a body with that many stabbings, cuts, and excess mutilations was usually an indication of a sex crime, more often than not a homosexual murder. Unfortunately, that was as far as we ever got. There was never any doubt in my mind that the men from Henderson, Texas, and Portland, Oregon were the killers, but I couldn't prove it. I had to mark this homicide up as an unsolved murder. Fort Hood in the 1970s was one giant headache after another. During the Vietnam War years, it was nothing unusual for a judge to give a person convicted of a felony a choice of either going into the military or going to the penitentiary. Given that choice, most picked military. I think Fort Hood was getting more than its share of these criminals, and that's where I came in. 
Many of these so-called soldiers made it clear that there was only one thing they hated worse than the military, Texas. As anyone who has been here in the summer can tell you, it gets hot in Texas, real hot. Take the heat, add it to the type of people we were getting, and it made for a bad situation. Fort Hood was an open base, which meant that anyone could drive on or off the base at any time. There were some restricted areas, but on the whole, you could go anywhere you wanted. All soldiers had a Class A pass, basically giving them the right to come and go as they pleased. That caused me a ton of problems. All a soldier had to do was have someone stand in for him at roll call. For some reason, names weren't taken. They counted bodies. If there were supposed to be 100 men on the roster and 100 bodies were counted, then everyone was present and accounted for. The soldier could be miles away and the record would show him being on the base. Every payday, the troops would receive half their pay by check and the other half in cash. I guess officials hoped that they might not blow the check half, but there were countless hole-in-the-wall check cashing shops all around the base. For many, the routine never varied. As soon as he got his money, the soldier would head for town. Many never made it. A shark is what the military called payday predators, and with good reason. Most of the soldiers had no way to get anywhere except by hitchhiking, and this is what the sharks counted on. They would pick up a hitchhiking soldier, drive him out into the boondocks, and kill him for his pay. The pattern was all too familiar and varied little from payday to payday. A call would come in that a body had been found by the side of a deserted country road, usually with a bullet through the head. There was so much of this going on, it would have been physically impossible for one man to tackle all of the cases by himself, and I had to pick and choose which cases I worked. You can't have five or six murder cases at one time and do any of them justice. To make matters almost impossible, it was sometimes days or weeks before a soldier would even be reported as missing or AWOL. That goes back to counting bodies instead of names. I have no idea how many times I spoke to a platoon or company or sometimes even a whole regiment trying to warn the troops of the dangers of the sharks and hitchhiking, but it never seemed to make any difference. Few paydays went by without a dead body turning up somewhere.